Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. John, not John Mitchinson, John Williams, where are you? I can see where you are. You're in a room, but where in the world are you? You have found me out. I am in a room. Um, I am in a room in my apartment in Brooklyn, New York, a neighborhood called Williamsburg. Is the Williamsburg of where the, uh, the Hasidic community is? There is a large Hasidic community in Williamsburg. Uh, it's a big, there are a lot of um, Italian people who have lived here for a very long time. Uh, and then there are, there are, relatively younger people like me who are destroying the whole place uh, and it's also f- most famously or infamously the uh the locale for the hbo series girls which is where it got its yeah. reputation from i think uh, is your continuing presence uh, in williamsburg john a sign of its ongoing hipness or the opposite <laughs> You know, for the first several years I lived in New York, I lived in a neighborhood called Park Slope in Brooklyn, which is a which is sort of a quiet family neighborhood. And then when I as I approached 40, I moved to Williamsburg. So I sort of did the reverse life commute. Um, it is it is fairly hip in Williamsburg, uh, but pretty gentrified at this point. So the, the real hipsters have gone two or three neighborhoods over toward the east. Uh, have we got enough there, Nick, for general ambience? We have, haven't we? We have. <laughs> I'm not used to seeing Nikki look so dressed up and yeah, again yeah. and against the backdrop. I, I feel very I feel very undre- underdressed today. I feel like I ought to go and get a, at least get a cardigan to put on. So I've done that thing where you can touch up your appearance. Uh, you can make yourself on Zoom get rid of your wrinkles. How weird! I've got rid of my wrinkles by shaving off my beard. <laughs> look at me! I'm twelve again, but with grey hair. Weird. It's a religious experience for us, I know. I am having a fairly severe hair and beard trim on Tuesday, so that's one of the things I'm doing when I can... How low are you going to go? I'll go as low as I feel feel like. I'm not going to go very low. Yeah. Don't ruin the brand. Well, you know, it's it's too many years now. It's been getting on for be 14 years, so it's a long wow. time. Wow. Wow. The first time I met John Mitchinson, which I remember and he doesn't, was in 1990. Uh-huh. Uh, when as a youth were you at a rave yeah, yeah in 1990 yeah that's right no, we i met not. him there it was good no yeah, you remember yeah. he didn't you know he's that's years he's his techno um awakening is many years hence. many years in the future yeah yeah <laughs> he came on a branch visit to the bookshop that i was working in was that Earl's in, Court, Bright- in brighton in oh, brighton. brighton way back 30 years ago 30 My years ago god it struck me at the time that he was a surprisingly young man yeah he had black, black hair and he was clean shaven. Yeah. And he was very cheerful. And he was talking to a shop <laughs> staffed once with... Once born, that's me. Once born. <laughs> with old Sheraton Hughes staff who'd converted over to Waterstones. When yeah, it was, it, was a, it, was a, it was a kind of a, an attempt to convert them to the faith of Waterstones, wasn't it? Or as Maggie Lennon once said... <laughs> What the hell is uh, probably what the fuck is the man who does the bugs and rep- ribbons doing standing on the stage next to Tim? <laughs> I, I was that was I was known. I was known as the man who did the bags and ribbons because that's apparently what, all, all she needed head office for. Uh, the, the the lack of deference in Waterstones was a marvelous thing. Wasn't <laughs> it was it, a Mitch? brilliant thing. We well, loved it. We loved it. Ah, uh, well, should we get on with it? Let's do it. Hello and welcome to Backlisted, the podcast that gives new life to old books. Today you find us in Edinburgh in May 1901. We're packed into the polished oak and marble magnificence of the Rhetoric and Humanities Lecture Theatre in the university's old college on Southbridge. At the front of the room 
sitting on a raised platform at a wooden table, a distinguished bearded American in his late 50s is looking through his papers, preparing to address the room. <laughs> it's quite like a normal episode of Backlisted. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, <laughs> I'm John Mitchinson, the publisher of Unbound, the platform where readers crowdfund books they really want to read. Uh, and I'm Andy Miller, author of The World Atlas of Cheeses. <laughs> and I'd like to thank listener Ian for giving me permission to do that. Thank you, Ian. That's marvellous. And joining us today is all the way from Williamsburg, USA, our first transatlantic link-up by satellite, John Williams. Yay! Thank you, guys. I am, I am honoured and frightened to be here. <laughs> John, please tell listeners, before I tell them who you are, tell them who you aren't. Yeah, this will be a two-part backlisted. Um, <laughs> the first part will be dedicated to this. I am not a classical guitarist. I am not the Star Wars composer. I am not a former Cleveland Cavalier or Seattle Seahawk professional football player. Um, I am not the author of Stoner. Um, <laughs> I'm not all, I mean, if you look at my disambiguation page on Wikipedia, it's not that I have an entry, but it's very funny. Um, you know, there's, there's a fact, like Australian sailors, and then there will be nine listed. <laughs> It'll go to the next sub- subcategory. Fortunately, there are no other writers called Andrew Miller. Worth bothering with. Anyway, joining us today is John Williams. He is his own special creation. He is the Daily Books editor and a staff writer at the New York Times. He is what he is, uh, where he has worked since 2011. Before that, John spent several years on the editorial side of book publishing and founded and ran the website The Second Pass. Uh, which was built partly on the love of older and more obscure books. And you sent us that description, and I realised that in your, you were sort of having a dig, really, weren't you, John? You were sort of saying, Backlisted is nothing but an audio rip-off of your website, The Second Path. <laughs> well, we'll talk about royalties afterwards. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we met because you commissioned a book that I was writing in the States that it took me a long time to finish, but you also let me write a couple of things for... That website, the second pass. Second pass was really brilliant website. Is it? Is it still oh, archived you. and available online? It is archived. I think the secondpass.com, Everything is still up there, including your two uh, rather great essays. One about um, a book, one of many books you've turned me on to, uh, which was uh, was it absolute beginners? Absolute beginners. Absolute beginners. Yes, which I which I loved and which you wrote about at length, but also sort of weaved in some of your own personal story. So that's up there. Yeah, it still exists for people to go back and you're, you're kind to say that it was great. It was great because people like you contributed to it um, when it was great. As Danny Baker says, let's stop lacing daisies into one another's hair. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what, what I wondered about the second pass, because the second pass, you were doing that about 10 years ago, weren't you? Yeah, about 10, 11 years ago. I think the world has changed quite a lot. I think in the last 10 years, what with uh, e-books and the internet and one thing and another, it's actually much easier to both learn about and get hold of older books or books that had been out of print. Uh, what are the books that you, are there books that you covered that are, are far less obscure now than when your contributors were writing about them? Well, one in particular comes to mind. I mean, that was part of the whole purpose of the website. Those changes were certainly starting back then. I don't, I think they've increased in the past 10 years, but I think even in my initial editor's note, I said something about the ease with which you can find even out of print books. Um, and, and one of the first essays we had, uh, in the section for sort of older and out of print books was an essay by a friend of mine named Deborah Shapiro, who's a novelist. And she wrote about Eve's Hollywood by Eve Babbitts, which at the time I hadn't mm. heard of. And she sent me, I think a picture of, there were some incredible art, maybe the author photo. You can imagine if you're familiar with Eve Babbitts, I think she was wearing a, some kind of tiger for print. Sure. And, and then yeah. she sent me a, a JPEG of the acknowledgements in the book, which she sort of starts the essay with, which is this hysterical list of her, her painkillers and therapists and all the people she thinks yeah, people yeah. and objects that she thinks and that's um that's become here uh, a pretty big cult hit through the new york review of books line which is which is one of the many places doing great great work in rescuing books and bringing them back i mean i'd never heard of eve's hollywood before reading about it on the second pass and it was several years before i read it and we talked about it on if people want to find it we talked about it on the huisman's episode that we recorded in paris i mean it's one of the books that people who listen to batlist is 
yeah. go off, find, read, and love. That's oh, a that's yeah. a fairly consistent pattern. That is a yeah, funny brilliant. book. Oh, she's hysterical. It, it, yeah, in in all kinds of ways. <laughs> yeah, quite. So, the book um, we're here to talk about is "The Varieties of Religious Experience" by William James, younger brother of Henry, professor of philosophy at Harvard, who delivered twenty hour-long talks as part of the prestigious Gifford Lecture Series at the University of Edinburgh in 1901 and 1902. And the texts of these were gathered together and first published in book form in 1902 by Longman's Green & Co. with the subtitle, A Study in Human Nature. Uh, it was an instant bestseller uh, and it's a landmark book that continues to influence our attitudes to and our understanding of religious experience in all its diverse kinds. I, I'd just like to say I've spent several weeks, John Williams, living with this book because it does. Nikki is is the queen of the great question on this podcast. <laughs> is this book easy to read? She will be waiting to ask. Right, this book is easy to read, mm-hmm. but you want to pace yourself. Yeah, listeners, is my advice. So, so this isn't this isn't a page turner. It's up to you to turn the pages. <laughs> Would you agree? How long do you think it should take the uh, an average reader? Well, I would say <laughs> we're not we're not prescriptive like that, Nikki. But um, <laughs> I, I did it with the assistance of the audio book. Very good idea. Hmm. Uh, specifically, the one read by John Pruden, which is on Audible, and actually that was a really great way to do it because the book was originally written as lectures, so each chapter is about an hour long. I did it over the space of about three weeks, listening to it mostly and then rereading bits if they felt a bit chewy or I felt I hadn't I hadn't quite got them so I I, so I guess what I'm saying to the listeners is it is really worth your time but take your time do you think Mitch I totally agree and I I love the um I've also listened to some of them on 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 that very recording and the uh the the way the book is structured is it's it is a dense book but it's 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 a very well read audio book, and he was apparently a very very good lecturer. In, in fact, some of the criticism that it, he, he attracted early on was that it was too popular. You know, he packed three hundred people into the hall, whereas previous this was about the fifteenth or sixteenth in the series of Gifford lectures. We'll we'll come on to this, but it felt to me like it was written by somebody yeah. who knew they were so good at it. He was exactly right. He's a, he's yeah. a, a kind of a, a very 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 good public speaker and lecturer. John, this is the book that you you so wanted to talk about on this podcast. Can you tell us a bit about when you first encountered it or the work of William James? Yes, I should say that I I did want to talk about it, but I also was not expecting you to say yes and and was pleasantly surprised when you did. So I'm glad we're doing it. Um, I think I read an essay of James's called The Will to Believe, which is um, I have a collection of his essays of the same title long time ago, early, early the century. Um, and so sort of got interested in them that way. And then I bought the varieties of religious experience at a bookstore in New York, sat on it for a few years. And in the summer of 2007, I picked it up because I was interested in it. But the the reason that it made such a difference to me, I, I was watching, I think it was a live event that you guys did at a bookstore where John was describing the start of the show and how one of the things you wanted to get at was not just obscure books, but books that changed people's lives. And that got me to thinking that, you know, I heard that after I chose this book, but there really is no, I can't say that there, there's an individual book that has changed my life in general. Books collectively certainly have. This is the one that comes closest though. And I think I probably can say that it it changed certainly my mood at the moment, which was very downcast. Um, and I was going through a hard time and the book felt very much like a consolation to me and James felt very much like a living friend. So you're mm. twice born. <laughs> I am twice born. It, it taught me a lot of things, obviously, but it also confirmed a lot of the things that I feel instinctively about the world and his his sort of many-sidedness I felt very sympathetic to. And I was someone who was raised with some religion and and had the expectation of, you know, my mother very much wanted us all to be religious. Um, and we all drifted from it at various times. I read a lot about religion and, and I don't, I don't practice mm. any myself, but I'm very interested in the subject. And I do feel a lot of those sort of the yearnings that you, that we'll be talking about, I'm sure throughout the episode. Mitch, had you read this before? No, is this is the honest answer. Although I had quoted it liberally 
because it's one of those books that you <laughs> not get. personally. Well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. You, know, you, you, yeah. You, you read bleeding chunks of it and it, you sort of know that it's in the background. <laughs> I'd, I'd read maybe a couple of essays by by James and was sort of interested. He was one of those people I was, I'd always m- thought at some point in my life I must sit down and actually read that book because it's it's so meshes with all my interests, and I have not been disappointed. I have to say, I mean it's quite ambitious considering it was in 1902. Religion is such a difficult word, isn't it? It's it's it makes people think of organised religion and it's emphatically not a book about organized religion. Uh, James himself very explicitly several times in the lectures says that he is not very interested in institutional religion, but personal experience and personal religion. Um, And so I think it is a book obviously about religion, but I have, I think I said somewhere that I think its subtitle is actually a more accurate title for it, which is a study of human nature. I find it to be a much more broad sort of searching about human psychology and human need. I've got the, uh, Oxford University Press edition here of the varieties of religious experience. Have you got that, John? Yep. Mitch has got that as well. Hey, John Williams, what have you got? Uh, oh, he's got a filthy mass market penguin edition. Look at that. <laughs> it is not a ma- it is a trade paperback. It is a perfectly sized <laughs> penguin classic. Um, Listen to us laughing about the technical terms for different formats. That that's such an in joke. Oh, appalling! Anyway, here's the blurb on the Oxford copy. Right, I think this is pretty good. The varieties of religious experience, 1902, is William James's classic survey of religious belief in its most personal and often its most heterodox aspects, asking questions such as how we define evil to ourselves the difference between a healthy and a divided mind, the value of saintly behaviour, and what animates and characterises the mental landscape of sudden conversion, James's masterpiece stands at a unique moment in the relationship between belief and culture. Faith in institutional religion and dogmatic theology was fading away, and the search for an authentic religion rooted in personality and subjectivity was a project conducted as an urgent necessity. With psychological insight, philosophical rigour, and a determination not to jump to the conclusion that in tracing religion's mental causes we necessarily diminish its truth or value, in the varieties of religious experience, James wrote a truly foundational text for modern belief. That is... That is- Longer and better than the one on my book. <laughs> Nikki, did that uh, communicate selling points to you? I think so. Uh, yeah. John, John, what's on your book? Mine says, um, there's a little extra blurb at the top that says, standing at the crossroads of psychology and religion, this groundbreaking work applied the scientific method to humankind's religious behavior. William James believed individual religious experiences, rather than the precepts of organized religions, were the backbone of the world's spiritual life. His discussions of conversion, repentance, mysticism, and saintliness, and his observations on actual personal religious experiences all support this thesis. In his introduction, I think you guys will get a kick out of this name, and it's a good introduction. In his introduction, Martin E. Marty discusses how James's pluralistic view of religion led to his remarkable tolerance of extreme forms of religious behavior, his challenging, highly original theories, and his welcome lack of pretension in all of his observations on the individual and the divine. I would stress the lack of pretension. I would say the, the, the one sort of overarching thing I would say about this book to someone like Nikki or anyone who is, you know, really just here trying to be sold a little bit is that it is both completely unpretentious. He's got this very conversational voice for someone so rigorous. Um, and it is also not, even though it is dense and you have to get used to its rhythms, he's perfectly comprehensible. As you're reading it, does it make you think of your own life and your own experiences? Speaking for myself, almost all it made me think about was my own psychology and reactions to the world and a bit those of people I know or care about. And it, it it felt like a guidebook to human nature, really, more than anything else. The thing that is that is most astonishing about it, and why I would I would give it a, a whirl, Nikki, 
is that because it's about these experiences and it, it, in some ways it's a it's a really interesting anthology of uh, of of experience um both experience that people have you know have written about but also first hand experience there's some amazing first hand experience that he's gathered that it, it it's it, you read it in the same way maybe as you might read um freud you know the, yeah. but without the without the heavy overlay of I'm trying to prove a theory. What's brilliant about William James is he's genuinely, he is the pragmatic empiricist who just wants to gather the evidence. And when he does come up with his kind of, um, his sort of declarations of what he feels at the end, they're very open-ended. So none of this book feels, even though it was written 120 years ago, none of it feels out of date. None of it feels old-fashioned. Um, we should we should say that William James is the is devised you know, he's a follower of pragmatism and a great proponent of pragmatism as a philosophy. And the phrase radical empiricism in terms of what John was just talking about, the phrase the divided self comes from William James. The actual phrase, the varieties of religious experience, which is passed into general parlance, I think anyway, is of course another uh, Jamesian um, motto. Before we move on to the next um, Beatle-led... <laughs> discussion <laughs> john could you read us a little bit from the varieties of religious experience just so we can get a flavor of of how william james talks to the reader yes i would be more than happy to um this is from a two-part lecture that i think is probably my favorite in in the series called the sick soul a, a lot of what james is writing about in that pragmatism is about how to feel better essentially and and a lot of the book is about really what it feels like to feel depressed or pessimistic. So this, this is a page here where he, he talks about that. To begin with, how can things so insecure as the successful experiences of this world afford a stable anchorage? A chain is no stronger than its weakest link, and life is, after all, a chain. In the healthiest and most prosperous existence, how many links of illness, danger, and disaster are always interposed? Unsuspectedly, from the bottom of every fountain of pleasure, as the old poet said, something bitter rises up, a touch of nausea, a falling dead of the delight, a whiff of melancholy, things that sound a knell. For fugitive as they may be, they bring a feeling of coming from a deeper region and often have an appalling convincingness. The buzz of life ceases at their touch as a piano string stops sounding when the damper falls upon it. Of course, the music can commence again and again and again at intervals. But with this, the healthy-minded consciousness is left with an irremediable sense of precariousness. It is a bell with a crack. It draws its breath on sufferance and by an accident. Even if we suppose a man so packed with healthy-mindedness as never to have experienced in his own person any of these sobering intervals, still, if he is a reflecting being, he must generalize and class his own lot with that of others. And doing so, he must see that his escape is just a lucky chance and no essential difference. He might just as well have been born to an entirely different fortune. And then indeed, the hollow security. What kind of a frame of things is it of which the best you can say is, thank God it has let me off clear this time? Is not its blessedness a fragile fiction? Is not your joy in it a very vulgar glee, not much unlike the snicker of any rogue at his success? If indeed it were all success, even on such terms as that. But take the happiest man, the one most envied by the world, and in nine cases out of ten, his inmost consciousness is one of failure. Either his ideals and the line of his achievements are pitched far higher than the achievements themselves, or else he has secret ideals of which the world knows nothing, and in regard to which he inwardly knows himself to be found wanting. That's 120 years old. I yeah. mean, I know there's a certain archaic kind of vocabulary to it, but even so, you can hear the, the willingness to reach out to the audience, to, to whoever was going to turn up in Edinburgh. I think that six soul, uh, the, the, that double chapter is my favorite as well, because the, the presentation of depression, and he does that thing in the middle of it where he, he claims that there's a French person who has ha having a really a bad depressive episode. And it turns out we discover that it was in fact him. It was him writing about his own depression. Um, I could read a short little passage of it. While in this state of philosophic pessimism and general depression of spirits about my prospects, I went one evening into a dressing room in the twilight to procure some article that was there, when suddenly there fell upon me without any warning, just as if it came out of the darkness, a horrible fear of my own existence. 
Simultaneously, there arose in my mind the image of an epileptic patient whom I'd seen in the asylum, a black-haired youth with greenish skin, entirely idiotic. He used to sit all day on one of the benches, or rather shelves against the wall, with his knees drawn up against his chin and the coarse grey undershirt, which was his only garment, drawn over them and enclosing his entire figure. He sat there like a sort of sculptured Egyptian cat or Peruvian mummy, moving nothing but his black eyes and looking absolutely non-human. This image and my fear entered into a species of combination with each other. That shape I am, I felt, potentially. Nothing that I possess can defend me against that fate if the hour for it should strike for me as it has struck for him. So it's a religious book, but it's also religion informed by what what the developments of psychology, uh, John, um, that have been taking place in the in the late nineteenth century and now here into the earlier twentieth century, right? Well, James was first and foremost uh, a philosopher and psychologist, um, and that's why to sort of think about the book as a book about religion is both accurate and not enough. Um, religion is such a huge subject that it allowed him to get at these other things, I think, that primarily interested him, um, including, as Lenin would say, and that was a brilliant choice, um, how to measure our pain, how to overcome our pain. But to me, I always describe this as a book about primarily about psychology. And that's not just because I don't want to scare people off of it because I don't think they're as interested in reading about religion as I am. I genuinely think that that is at its heart what this is. You know, he spends a lot of time on healthy mindedness, but you get the sense like that brilliant part that John read a minute ago, that James doesn't really cast his lot with the healthy-minded. He doesn't sympathize with them, and he doesn't think they need the help. You know, if, if you're healthy-minded, what you really need, I guess, is a reflection of why you think the world is full of good, why it's a bounteous place, you know, what your place in it should be, and that's all fine. But he's really interested in people yeah. who reach a breaking point, essentially, and almost break through their ego. There, there's a lot of vaguely new age material in here too, which mm. he's very friendly toward in his open-mindedness. And, you know, he's talking maybe 40 years after the sort of the world started to tangle with Darwin. And, um, and it's still fresh, I think, that sense of not knowing where to turn, but being interested in it. One of the things that I really enjoyed about the book was the way that you've both referred to it, but the way James uses secondary sources Mm. and how he doesn't prefer um, types of secondary source. So he's very happy to pull in eyewitness reports uh, that are barely literate right up to Tolstoy. So, and he specifically talks about a com- Tolstoy's Confession, one of the, which is an incredible book in its own right. I'd just like to read a little bit from that, from the bit that William James draws to our attention. And again, it's from The Sick Soul. Tolstoy describes an experience that clearly James had gone through, in fact, John, that he'd just written about in the bit you read. Yeah. He's talking about somebody French, but he, he's talking about himself. Uh, a crisis not merely of faith, but a cri- an existential crisis of thinking, why, why am I here? This, I'm, you know, um, I ought to be happy. I ought to be satisfied. I ought to be fulfilled. I'm not only am I none of those things, I'm the opposite. I'm on the brink of, of suicide. And... Um, he, he quotes this section from a confession by Tolstoy. And uh, uh, I just, it was so pleasing to see this again. And he talks about an oriental fable of a traveller surprised in the desert by a wild beast. Seeking to save himself from the fierce animal, the traveller jumps into a well with no water in it. But at the bottom of this well, he sees a dragon waiting with open mouth to devour him. And the unhappy man, not daring to go out lest he should be prey of the beast, not daring to jump to the bottom lest he should be devoured by the dragon, clings to the branches of a wild bush which grows out of one of the cracks of the well. His hands weaken, and he feels that he must soon give way to certain fate. But still he clings and sees two mice one white, one black, evenly moving around the bush to which he hangs and gnawing off its roots. (laughs) The traveller sees this and knows that he must inevitably perish. But while thus hanging, he looks about him and finds on the leaves of the bush some drops of honey. These he reaches with his tongue and licks them off with rapture. Thus 
I hang upon the bowels of life, knowing that the inevitable dragon of death is waiting ready to tear me, and I cannot comprehend why I am thus made a martyr. I try to suck the honey which formerly consoled me, but the honey pleases me no longer. And day and night, the white mouse and the black mouse, nor the branch to which I cling, I can see but one thing, the inevitable dragon and the mice. I cannot turn my gaze away from them. <laughs> I mean, for, first and foremost, <laughs> you told the genius of Tolstoy, of yeah, course, yeah. but the varieties of religious experience is one of the ways that William James seeks to address that dilemma. We're, we're all hanging from the bough. Should we, should we seek out the honey? Should we take our eyes off the mice? What should we do? I mean, also, he, he, he is brave. You know, he's prepared to put his mind where his mouth is. And he takes drugs. He takes ni nitrous oxide, famously. <laughs> and why does he do that, Mitch? You know, he's a scientist. Part of him is he wants to, tr to try it. And one of the uh, unexpected kind of delights of nitrous oxide is that he? Uh, it means he can. He starts to enjoy reading Hegel. <laughs> if you say so, <laughs> is that what the oxide addicts get into? Hegel, love stuff. He says this. He says this. The effects will, of course, vary with a very individual, just as they vary in the same individual from time to time. But it's probable in the former case, as in the latter, a generic resemblance will obtain. With me, as with every other person whom I've heard, the keynote of the experience is the tremendously exciting sense of an intense metaphysical illumination. Truth lies open to the view in depth, beneath depth of almost blinding evidence. The mind sees all the logical relations of being with an apparent subtlety and instantaneity to which normal, its normal consciousness offers no parallel. Only as sobriety returns, the feeling of insight fades and one is left staring vacantly at a few disjointed words and phrases as one stares at the cadaverous-looking snow peak from which the sunset glow has just fled or at the black cinder left by an extinguished brand. Now, that's brilliant. There's a famous story about him, which is that he'd taken nitrous oxide and he wrote down on a piece of paper what he thought was the meaning of the universe. And when he came down from it, what was written on the piece of paper is this phrase, the smell of turpentine pervades throughout. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? He didn't just try nitrous oxide. He tried chloral hydrate and he wrote about that. He tried amyl nitrate and he wrote about that. And he tried peyote <laughs> to try and free the mind so his ass would follow. <laughs> try that. You know, that story John just told, the first time the Beatles met Bob Dylan, uh, famously Bob Dylan turned them on to marijuana. And Paul McCartney tells a story about he smoked his first joint and suddenly everything was revealed to him. And he said to Mal Evans, you've got to get me a piece of paper and a pen. You've got to get me a piece of paper and a pen. I've, I've got it. I've got it. I've got to write it down and just hang on to it till tomorrow morning. So Mal Evans is the Beatles roadie and gopher. He goes off. He finds Paul, the stone Paul McCartney, a piece of paper, a bit of pen. And Paul scribbles it down. And they go on to enjoy the rest of the, the evening with Bob Dylan. McCartney wakes up the next morning and there's the bit of paper folded by his bed with the meaning of life on it. And he opens it up and it says, there are five levels. It's <laughs> <laughs> so like the Jamesian experience <laughs> through great. the same, through the prism of the Beatles again. But There are five levels. So now we have to figure out what the levels are. But but to answer that question, I mean, in, in terms of why he took the drugs, I think he has this great line in the book that I can't find, of course, now about how, you know, if there's something that can give us some wisdom, why wouldn't we do it? And he's just interested in anything that might enlighten or help or anything. He's just very open-minded. And that's sort of his trademark quality. But actually, that's interesting because religious experiences for many are in taking drugs, aren't they? And that's how, you know, that's why ayahuasca is so popular. Uh -huh. And, you know, so that's what people do. Uh, there's a really good book by an American writer named John Horgan, who's a popular science writer, and he, uh, it's called Rational Mysticism. And it's about the sort of border between science and religion. It's from about 15 years ago. Uh, we may well come on to uh, spiritual experiences induced by uh, imbibing substances. We might do, we might not. We've all talked about uh, uh, the varieties of religious experience as a repository of not just William James's writing, but other interesting or, or striking writing. So when the philosopher... Mary Midgley appeared on Desert Island Discs in 2005. She was asked about her luxuries, and this is what she said. Now, Mary, I have to ask you three questions. If you could only take one of those eight records, which one would you take? 
Oh, my. I think it has to be Vaughan Williams' Fantasia on a theme of Talis. I think that's a kind of all-purpose one, you know, that would always make one feel better, whatever might be going on. And a book you can take with you as well ah, as now, yes. Shakespeare. Um, here, no trouble. William James's Varieties of Religious Experience. This is 500 pages long. It's bung full of excellent stories about people's different um, religious attitudes and what got them into them and out of them. And the thoughts that he has about them are jolly interesting. I know that this will work because last summer I was actually quite ill and I was convalescing and I thought, oh dear, what am I going to read? I know I've got war and peace, but it won't last me, you see, the whole of August. Um, and I took this realizes it it is a religious experience off the shelf, thinking it was pretty good, and indeed it is absolutely marvellous. You can read it many times without the slightest trouble. John Williams, that rings really true, right? The idea that it's it's a plural text, yeah. a pluralist Well, text. first of all, one of the other books of his I've read, a, a philosophy book, is called The Pluralistic Universe, and that's very much the uh, the William James. So, I mean, I have so many things to say about that. First is that I had no idea that Mary Midgley had done A Desert Island Disc, so thank you for that, because I need enabler. to go back and listen to that whole thing. And I and I love Mary Midgley, so it's, I'm, I'm buffeted by the fact that she also loves William James. And and she has my inner voice, I think, much like Anita Bruckner. I think I sound like Mary Mitchley on the inside of me. Um, but yes, he, it, it's funny that you you read from Tolstoy and I just, there is a, I always forget when I dip back into it, I'm reminded of how many other sources they are, there are and and how often he's quoting at length other sources. And he has a great eye for that. And he's, he's a very trustworthy curator. So even though he's interrupting himself all the time, it's almost always for a good reason and with, with a good with a good text. And then you'll get Tolstoy and then you'll see something like, I noticed the other night I was rereading and it, I read this quote and I think, oh, that's interesting. I look down at the footnote and it says something like the life and memoirs of Henry Thomas Butterworth, uh, you know, Lebanon, Ohio, 1886. And so it's just a wide net that he is casting from everything from Tolstoy to just very everyday experiences. Time now for an advert. Over 25 years ago, on September 29th, 1998, we watched a brainy girl with curly hair drop everything to follow a guy she only kind of knew all the way to college. And so began Felicity. My name is Juliette Littman, and I'm a Felicity superfan. Join me, Amanda Foreman, who you may know better as Megan, the roommate, and Greg Grunberg, who you may also know as Sean Blunberg, as the three of us revisit our favorite moments from the show and talk to the people who helped shape it. Listen to Dear Felicity, presented by Walmart on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The National Women's Soccer League kicks off March 16th on ION. It's a new Saturday night destination featuring the best players in the world. 25 Saturday nights, 50 matches, all season long on ION. Out in front to Williams, slips through, here's a shot, it's in! This is a game changer for sports. Sabina takes a shot herself. See the full schedule and find where to watch at IonNWSL.com. So we've talked about it as a religious book and we've talked about it as a work of psychology. Maybe I should say just a bit about who William James was. So the James family, there are five of them. Uh, William James is the eldest. He's the son of the Swedenborgian theologian Henry James Sr., and he is, of course, the brother of both the prominent novelist Henry James and the diarist Alice James and two younger Jameses who nobody... There's a definite kind of Salinger stroke Wes Anderson theme running through this, right? About a highly intellectual family <laughs> like the Tenenbaums or the Glasses. William James and Henry James didn't have a really close relationship, did they? They kind of had a fairly sparky relationship. And I, I thought you might enjoy this letter that <laughs> William wrote to younger brother Henry in 1905 uh, about his most recent novel. I just want you to think, <laughs> here are two brothers 
with a few years difference between them, who are also William James and Henry James. <laughs> Both those elements are constantly in play, right? In their early 60s. It's yeah, great. here yeah, we yeah. go, here we go. William James writes, I read your Golden Bowl a month or more ago, and it put me, as most of your recent or long stories have put me, in a very puzzled state of mind. <laughs> I don't enjoy the kind of problem especially when, as in this case, it is treated as problematic. And the method of narration by interminable elaboration of suggestive <laughs> reference, brackets, I don't know what to call it, but you know what I mean, <laughs> close brackets, goes again the grain of all my own impulses in writing. And yet, in spite of it all, brackets, little brother, there is a brilliancy and cleanness of effect, and in this book especially, a high-toned social atmosphere that are unique and extraordinary. Your methods and my ideals seem the reverse, the one of the other. And yet I have to admit your extreme success in this book. But why won't you, just to please brother, sit down and write a new book with no twilight, or mustiness in the plot, with great vigour and decisiveness in the action, no fencing in the dialogue, no psychological commentaries, and absolute straightness in the style. <laughs> Isn't that, that's lovely, right? That's what everybody would like to say to Henry James. <laughs> For God's sake, man, get to the point. Yeah, beautiful. John, did you say that you sort of, you look more beneficently on Henry James as a result of reading William James. Well, I think I that's that's giving me too much credit. I, I hadn't really given Henry much of a chance. I think I probably read him too young. I felt all the things that William expresses in that letter and I put it down and I never really gave it all that much thought again, even though I figured I'd go back someday and try him again. Um, but no, it just between between falling in love with this person and figuring that someone who shares his family would be pretty interesting too. But it was really Richardson's biography that, that put me back toward Henry because it's great on all the family dynamics. The family is endlessly fascinating. There are dozens of books about them. Um, and Richardson really gets at their relationship, the thorniness of it. But also, ultimately, there's a very moving scene you know, toward the end about them. And I think I read The Americans first, which is kind of a weird choice, but I liked it a lot. But eventually I read the... Uh, Obviously, Portrait of a Lady, which is which is the masterpiece, I think. Yeah, so I've, I've read five or six of his novels now. When William James died, Henry James said, this sounds like one of those things, like if somebody tried, I mean, I'm not saying they didn't love one another, they clearly did love one another, but Henry James said of his brother, my brother had an endless spontaneity of mind. It's almost like a backhanded compliment. <laughs> my brother had an endless spontaneity of mind. And Alice James who I think died before William James, she described him as a blob of mercury. That he was what you can read in the varieties of religious experience. You know, the idea of literature as an expression of personality. Actually, I think that does come through, however artfully rerouted in the varieties of religious experience. He's endlessly fascinated in things and he doesn't want to be stuck in one area forever. So we've talked about the book as a religious book as a, a psychological text or as a work of philosophy, what's the thing that binds all those things together? It's the the god of the of the text, which is the author. It's the author's personality, mm. kind of, kind of uh, uh, because they are. It's the best kind of book because they are interested in it. You should be interested in it. Bravo! Yes, and that that is that that is his his ideal in the end. Really, is he he was a he was an artist. He was a failed artist himself, mm -hmm. and when he says religion he takes it to mean the feelings acts and experiences of individual men in their solitude so far as they apprehend themselves to stand in relation to whatever they may consider the divine well now that is the perfect perfect definition individually whatever we consider the divine um i would like to round out the conversation about the book and given that it's given us so much food for thought by asking each of you what you consider to be the closest thing that you have experienced personally to a spiritual experience or a, or a religious experience in those terms, in those Jamesian terms, not organised religion necessarily, though I suppose it can be organised religion, but in terms of just you and your consciousness. So 
Well, why don't we go round the group? <laughs> Mitch, why don't you go first? Um, well, I think the nearest I've had to anything like that was um, uh, before I'd moved to the village I now live in. Um, I used to occasionally come here and I used to visit the church, which I loved greatly. Uh, it's an amazing building. One of the reasons it's amazing, it's surrounded by trees and it's got no stained glass windows. So the light is incredible. And I remember sitting in there one winter's afternoon, not because I was having a, you know, a communing with God, but because it's a, it's a space, one of those things, it's the T.S. Eliot line, a place where prayer has been made valid. You know, people have worshipped mm. whatever they believed in over, over a, a thousand years there. And I was completely conscious of my grandfather sitting next to me who had died um, six months earlier. And uh, it was not a, there was no doubt in my mind at all that he was with me. I've never had that experience uh, before or since. And its influence, I think, it, it gave me some kind of weird permission later on when I was thinking about moving to the village I now live in. It was that, that experience was, and, and you know, I, I'd say we've, you know, we've baptized all our children there. We were married in that church. We buried Rachel's sister in the in the churchyard. Yeah, and that's that's as close as I've ever got. And that would come in to the chapter, the reality of the unseen mm. in, uh, in, so, in this book. And do you consider yourself once born or twice born? I'm going to ask everyone this. Do you consider yourself once born or twice born? Once born, you're you're happy. You're a, you're a happy person. Twice born, you need a religious experience. Yeah, I, I'm I'm. I, I think I'm a. I think I'm liminal. Actually, I think I'm fundamentally once born, but I have uh, sometimes the, the the plank, as Emily Dickinson, <laughs> the plank in reason breaks. There's a great description of Whit Whitman being as Fotherington Thomas as anyone has ever been ever in the book, about uh, never getting cross, never being never being cross with anybody, never criticizing anybody. My best self is once born. I think the phrase "I think I'm liminal" should be the title <laughs> of your solo album, uh, John. Tell us, if you can, if, you, if you've had a moment. Yeah, it was difficult to think about this. And John actually just triggered something that I'm going to say. This was not what I had prepared, but um, the but it's definitely the answer for me. Um, the first time that I visited the um, Rothko Chapel in Houston, Texas, which is a non-denominational, essentially it's a work of art by, by Rothko. It's a octagonal shaped building that you walk in and it has his sort of signature paintings, but they're all in, as much as this is a contradiction, various shades of black. Um, they're very, very dark colors that are barely distinguishable from each other. It's very quiet in there and it's obviously temperature controlled because it's in Texas. And I stood there and, you know, you have these experiences, I think, with art and with nature that I don't think always apply. I mean, the first time I, when I saw the, um, when I walked into the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona a couple of years ago at, at, with a couple of hours of sun left in the day and the sun was just streaming throughout the whole place, that was an incredible feeling of awe. And I did think about religious things, obviously, because of the setting, but I wouldn't call it this. This was more that it turned me it turned me inside myself and made me disappear at the same time, which is, I think, part of what James mm. is getting at. It made me both highly conscious of my own mm. sensations and feeling. And it also made me feel as if everything, including me was meaningless and that was okay. And, and it moved me very, very deeply. And so that would be, that would be my, you know, James says that, that mystical experiences have no intellectual content whatsoever, true mystical experience. Yeah. And so you can't really mm, articulate mm. them. Yes. By asking you, all I can ask you to do is, edge towards the thing itself because the thing itself probably can't be articulated he quotes someone else saying have you not felt that your real soul was imperceptible to your mental vision except in a few hallowed moments beautiful aren't you going to ask me how many times i've been born <laughs> would you say you are once born twice born or neither <laughs> i'm going to crib from mitch a little bit here if i may call him mitch um I think that temperamentally I am once born. I think that people who know me would would say that my the way I express myself is once born, but I definitely feel like I am someone who is waiting to be twice born and thinking it's probably never going to happen. Mm. Oh, this is good. And we're just about to turn to our producer Nikki Birch at where, <laughs> where where Nikki, you were saying yes. you were said to me earlier you were you were hedging round how personal you thought this should be, right? <laughs> Weren't you? 
because it, cause it could yeah. be really personal. Uh, but all I want is a moment. I want like a moment where you've thought, wow, there's something bigger than me, whatever, whatever that might be, whenever that might be. So can I go with twice born, once born first? <laughs> yeah, do it. Do it. Yeah. So I, I'm definitely once born, straight up, <laughs> once born, occasionally at Glastonbury weekend, twice born. <laughs> <laughs> but most of the rest of the year, once born. That's great. Okay. So religious experience, given that I am once born, I wouldn't say I've had a, a deeply religious experience, but I am part of a cult. I don't know if I told you this. So I have, uh, I'm part of, I'm not going to say what the cult's called because I don't want to publicize it, but let's just call it a tree cult. Okay. So I'm part of a tree cult right. where me and a number of other people um, get together. It involves spending a lot of time amongst the trees. So yeah. Camping, you know, hanging out by the fire. Forest bathing. Forest bathing. Yeah. Anyway, so. This weekend, just back from something similar, having been in lockdown for many, many months, mm. there's been no tree culting. Mm. You know, mm. the cult the cult has not gathered, mm. right? We have not spent the time in the woods. We have not hung out. We have not, like, uh, breathed in nature and we've not been together. And this weekend, we had our first um, connection. We, we kind of met again, some of us, not all of us, it's, it's there's actually thousands of people in this cult, which makes it sound really creepy, but it's, it's not. Pretty, it's pretty amazing. This is way beyond anything yeah. I was hoping for. <laughs> right. Okay. So anyway, this weekend, we spent some time in the woods and by, the, by, by a river and watching members of the tree cult uh, one by one as they emerged from their car to see where they were, to see they were being outside, to get straight into the river because oh, it was lovely and gosh, sunny. Yeah. Everybody just walked one by one. There's only about 10 of us. You know, it wasn't many of us. but um, And everyone's face was just like, you can just imagine. It was just jubilant. It was ecstatic. Wow. It was like, oh, my God, I'm back again Amazing. In, in the woods, in the water. I mean, naked in the water or just do you have kind of... No, no, in swimming costumes, John. It's not that kind of cult. <laughs> Obviously, if you came, you could get naked. It's up to you, you know, be yourself. But there it's are children. Non, there are it's children. It's a non-judgmental sect. Well, actually, you know, there's children involved. So okay, we, do like to, we do like to keep swimming costumes thank on. Goodness. Important. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so that, I'd say, was a religious experience, not just for me, but for and watching everybody enjoying the fact that they weren't at, no longer at home. That was pretty and, wonderful. Yeah, so there's a mixture of things there. So there's the, 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 there's the you know, the back to nature element, but there's also doing it with other people. people so it's yeah. a communal yeah. experience right yeah. and you mentioned glastonbury that's another kind of the spiritual moment of a festival or dancing or 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 any of those things they all seem to fit to me burning man famously burning yeah. man right okay yeah all my spiritual experiences i t i tried to address this as seriously as i could in a in a non ironic non um flinching away from the topic because obviously i'm not very comfortable with anything uh, that, that can't be flinched away from. And uh, I'm doing it then. I'm making a joke about it, but it's actually true. All my spiritual experiences are to do with books and music and art and film and TV and cultural experiences. Always. That when it comes down to it, always. And they're always solitary. They're, 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 they aren't communal. And I'm, I would describe myself as twice born and still waiting hmm. you know each epiphany for me is a pointer to the next epiphany uh and i uh, uh and i it'll be uh, like william james if i may be so bold it'll be a sad day when i stop looking it's better to travel you know it's better to travel and find new things and and find those moments and actually i had one of these and i am going to call it spiritual i had one of these epiphanies in the run-up to this episode if you listen to the uh, if you're a patron subscriber and you can listen to a lot listed, you'll hear me talk about this in more depth on that episode. But um, I read uh, initially out of duty and increasingly out of enthusiasm that everything written by J.D. Salinger in the space for about a fortnight. And uh, I had dismissed J.D. Salinger's work when I was 19 because it didn't speak to me. And all I can tell you is at the age of 52, having just 
read the varieties of religious experience, it really spoke to me loud and clear, especially the short stories in For Esme with Love and Squalor, or as it's mm. called in the States, nine stories. And even as I was reading them, I was thinking, goodness, these seem connected with the varieties of religious experience. I was thinking about William James writing in the varieties of religious experience about how even epiphanies are the result of gradual movements towards moments rather than lightning bolts. So he discusses in the book, and I was thinking, wow, it's like reading William James has primed me to have this experience, but that doesn't mean this experience isn't valid. And what struck me about the stories in Nine Stories, and as I read through Salinger's work, is that it's profoundly concerned with spirituality. You know, we think of him in terms of the Catcher in the Rye and whatever our prejudices are about the Catcher in the Rye and whenever we read Catcher in the Rye and we think about his retreat from the world. But we don't think about him as somebody who in his work is trying to find an accommodation between the demands of the secular world, the American world, the commercial world in which he's been born, once born, and the sense of something bigger the sense of a kind of Jamesian need to reach out and find something else. And John and Mitch and I both noticed that in Salinger's very first uh, published story, which is called The Young Folks, uh, published in a magazine in 1940 and available only on the internet and nowhere (laughs) else. You'll have to look for it. There's a character called William Jameson Jr., It's like there's a joke at the very beginning in the second paragraph of anything J.D. Salinger ever published about a character who is entirely without any spiritual element whatsoever, and his name is William James' son. You know, (laughs) so the, the clue is there at the very beginning of the work. And then as Salinger goes on, it seemed to me, as I read these over the space of a week, I just thought, wow, this guy is, why would this guy, it seems common sense, it all fell away. I thought, well, why would this guy be published in the New Yorker by William Maxwell if he weren't a great writer? He's a great writer. (laughs) He just has this, he just has this freak cultural monolith to carry around with him. And I guess I would interpret what he does with the rest of his career and what he does with the rest of his life as a way of finding making the work the spiritual quest. So I asked my friends on this podcast to read nine stories. And I'm going to ask John Williams first. In New York City, an American man. (laughs) Through and through. You'd never read nine stories before. I hadn't. I had read The Catcher in the Rye way back when. And that's the only Salinger I had read. And I, I, I would gladly come back. I'm not inviting myself back, but I would, I would do another five-hour show on Salinger. Um, he, I, I, because, <laughs> because I have a lot, like you do, I have a lot to say because I wasn't prepared for the variety of feelings I had and, um, and where he fit into so many different things in American culture and in definitely in William James-ish uh, ways. Because The Catcher in the Rye, as far as I remember, I'm sure there is spiritual stuff in it, but the, but the books I'm reading now, Franny and Zooey and Nine Stories, there's much more explicit, um, you know, sort of verging on new agey, uh, you know, very Eastern philosophy inflected um, seeking for for experience and for wisdom. And I, I, I loved the story. I didn't love all the stories in the collection equally, but I found it really interesting. I, you know, he has this really weird combination of like, this sort of wised up naive voice in terms of the tone. I'm not saying he's naive, but just the the sense you get, it's very mid-century American and very mid-century, a certain kind of New York that, that like you're saying, I think Wes Anderson would have created if he had lived back then. And Mitch, what did you make of it? Uh, I was absolutely uh, amazed. I have to say, uh, I, you know, we, we have talked elsewhere about uh, Catcher in the Rye, but that was the only Salinger I'd read. And, um, you know, Rachel, my wife, is a massive Salinger fan and had always said I should read them. And I don't know what I was expecting, but I wasn't expecting this cumulative kind of build up through the, through the nine stories to um, two stories at the end, which are um, as, as really as, as, as 
interesting as any short stories I think I've that, that been writ- written in the second half of the 20th century by anyone, and much more spiritual and uh, and 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 complex. What, what one um, Teddy and the other Domius Miss Blue period. You know, had William James written it after his his book, after I'm almost certain that these that, that, that he would have quoted these the, the, the experiences in these stories as as perfect examples of a, variety, a particular variety of religious experience. To Domio Smith's Blue Period in particular has a brilliant narrative conceit, where a, a young man who seems fine goes to work uh, tutoring in an art school, and um, it's only when he receives some artwork from a nun which has been sent in and then writes a letter to the nun that you realise he's not nearly as well as he seemed at first, right? So it has this brilliant thing in the letter to the nun which signs off, I mean, this made me laugh out loud, with sincere hope that you are enjoying completely perfect health. I am, yours respectfully, <laughs> John de Domier Smith, right? That's, the, that's just one of the tells. And then near the end of the story... He has the very thing that William James writes about so often uh, where he says, uh, the narrator says, something extremely out of the way happened to me some 15 minutes later, a statement I'm aware that has all the unpleasant earmarks of a build-up, but quite the contrary is true. I'm about to touch on an extraordinary experience, one that still strikes me as having been quite transcendent. And I'd like, if possible, to avoid seeming to pass it off as a case or even a borderline case of genuine mysticism. And then he goes on to describe that event and tie up the story over the course of a page in a way that I had to read three or four times. I don't want to read it on here because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who might read it. I mean, clearly getting into reading secret messages into J.D. Salinger doesn't lead anywhere good, especially as we've been playing bits from <laughs> Beatles records. But, uh... but it's a genius decision to read that story on your part. I was just really profoundly spiritually, intellectually moved by that book and that story for the yeah. reasons you're talking about. Yeah, there are there are that Teddy and I think Foresmo with Love and Squalor are... Uh, as... Yeah, I mean, they're mind-blowing stories. It made me, Blue Period, what it made me wish is that I had gone through my life writing down these moments because the banality of the moment, the actual moment, is I think there have been moments where that's when that feeling has come over me, almost like it did in the Rothko Chapel, but it just wasn't noteworthy enough in its surrounding details to be noted by me. Well, listen, we have to to wrap up. I'm going to want to give the last word on William James to... Our guest, John, as people leave this podcast, filing out of our chapel into the sunshine, what will they get from reading this book? I think they'll get solace. And I think if they, I think they will understand themselves and other people better. That's a big claim, but I really think that's what they'll get. In 2020, that's what we need from any book, isn't it? And I would like to thank John and the thank of the three of you today, actually. This is one of the books I've enjoyed most thinking about and getting ready for to do Batlisted and, and anticipated this conversation. And it's been wonderful. So it was like Christmas morning for me this morning. I was very excited and nervous. Thank you guys for having me on. I really appreciate it. I mean, formal thanks to John for helping us engage once more uh, with a, a text which is, I think, as, as relevant, maybe more relevant than ever at the moment. And of course, to Nikki for pulling our epiphanies into an intelligible oral experience and to Unbound for paying for the nitrous oxide. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you can download all 116 previous episodes of this thing. Plus follow links, clips and suggestions for further reading by visiting our website, batlisted.fm. And we're always pleased if you contact us on Twitter or Facebook or our new Instagram page. Yep. And if you've enjoyed this, uh, you could also show your love directly by supporting our Patreon at www.patreon.com forward slash backlisted. We're trying to survive without paid for adverts, but quality demands time. So your generosity helps us buy that. And it's our sole source of income. All patrons get to hear backlisted episodes early and for less than the price of an online meditation course, lock listeners get two extra lock listeds a month. The place where we go to commune with the higher power and find sounds, words, images and visions to share. 
And actually, it might be worth mentioning that the next episode of Backlisted will be um, highlights from um, from Locklisted. That's a good point. Summer special. We're not talking about one book next time. We're doing a summer special where we're taking some of the bits from Locklisted over the last few months during the lockdown and some of the books that we've read and enjoyed and talked about with one another. And so we hope that will provide you with a useful guide of things you could read over the summer. It's pragmatic. It's plural. It's, it's James in, in the full sense of it. <laughs> but now we have to read some names out for the lovely lot listeners. Shall I start? Go. Um, excellent. Richard Bray, uh, novelist and good man. Joe Elcote, Faye, Julia Van Toole, Anna Disley, Melanie Hunger, Sanjay Hazarika, Robin Muir, Rachel Malik. Hi, Rachel. Rachel. Uh, Mark Ellingham, great publisher. Hi, Mark. Thank you. Stephen Maynard, Kylie Day, David Cooper, Sally Walden, Ewan Tant. Ah, Ewan Tant. The great Ewan Tant. Uh, hi, Ewan. I'd like to just bung in here uh, our friends Nick Riddle and Joe Darling, who yes. both contacted me this week and said, <clears throat> but where are we? There you are. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Joe. Uh, you're both brilliant yeah. listeners. Keep the comments coming. We love, we love hearing from you. Jenny Brophy, Philippa Lang, Mary Reedy, Robin Herndon, Deborah Houghton, David O'Connell, Will Gore. Hi, Will. Patsy Irwin. Thanks, hey. Patsy. Thanks, Patsy. Still Julian waiting for Gunn, that chili. <laughs> Julian Gunn, Anita Simons, Jackie Fry, Jen Willis, Russell Strode, Helen Shavin, Sia Stewart. Thank you so much, everybody. We literally couldn't make this without you. So thank you. Thank you. And that's it. Um, thank you for listening. Uh, we are back, um, as Andy says, in the main show in a fortnight. Or um, sign up for the Patreon and you'll get, you'll get two extra shows each month. Thank you for listening. prefer to listen to Backlisted without adverts, you can sign up to our Patreon. It's www.patreon.com forward slash Backlisted. As well as getting the show early, you get a whole two extra episodes of what we call Locklisted, which is Andy, me and Nikki talking about the books, music and films we've enjoyed in the previous fortnight.